0: Section 19 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Line 321 No Honor Now, etc. Honor, in its figurative sense, is a chimera without truth or being, an invention of moralists and politicians, and signifies a certain principle of virtue not related to religion found in some men, that keeps them close to their duty and engagements, whatever they may be. As, for example, a man of honor enters into a conspiracy with others to murder a king, he is obliged to go through stitch with it, and if overcome by remorse or good nature, he startles at the enormity of his purpose, discovers the plot, and turns a witness against his accomplices. He then forfeits his honor, at least among the party he belonged to. The excellency of this principle is that the vulgar are destitute of it, and it is only to be met with in people of the better sort, as some oranges have kernels and others not, though the outside be the same. In great families it is like the gout, generally counted hereditary, and all the Lord's children are born with it. In some that never felt anything of it, it is acquired by conversation and reading, especially of romances, in others by preferment, but there is nothing that encourages the growth of it more than a sword, and upon the first wearing of one, some people have felt considerable shoots of it in four and twenty hours. The chief and most important care a man of honor ought to have is the preservation of this principle, and rather than forfeit it, he must lose his employment and estate, nay, life itself, for which reason, whatever humility he may show by way of good breeding is allowed to put an inestimable value upon himself, as a possessor of this invisible ornament. The only method to preserve this principle is to live up to the rules of honor, which are laws he is to walk by. Himself is obliged always to be faithful to his trust, to prefer the public interest to his own, not to tell lies, nor defraud or wrong anybody, and from others to suffer no affront, which is a term of art for every action designedly done to undervalue him. The men of ancient honor, of which I reckon Don Quixote to have been the last upon record, were very nice observers of all these laws, and a great many more than I have named. But the moderns seem to be more remiss. They have a profound veneration for the last of them, but they pay not an equal obedience to any of the other. And whoever will but strictly comply with that I hint at, shall have abundance of trespasses against all the rest connived at. A man of honor is always counted impartial, and a man of sense, of course, for nobody ever heard of a man of honor that was a fool. For this reason he has nothing to do with the law, and is always allowed to be a judge in his own case, and if the least injury be done either to himself or his friend, his relation, his servant, his dog, or anything which he is pleased to take under his honorable protection, satisfaction must be forthwith demanded. And if it proves an affront, and he that gave it likewise a man of honor, a battle must ensue. From all this it is evident that a man of honor must be possessed of courage, and that without it his other principle would be no more than a sword without a point. Let us therefore examine what courage consists in, and whether it be, as most people will have it, a real something that valiant men have in their nature distinct from all their other qualities, or not. There is nothing so universally sincere upon earth as the love which all creatures, that are capable of any, bear to themselves. And as there is no love but what implies a care to preserve the thing beloved, so there is nothing more sincere in any creature than his will, wishes, and endeavors to preserve himself. This is the law of nature." by which no creature is endued with any appetite or passion, but what either directly or indirectly tends to the preservation either of himself or his species. The means by which nature obliges every creature continually to stir in this business of self-preservation are grafted in him and, in man, called desires, which either compel him to crave what he thinks will sustain or please him, or command him to avoid what he imagines might displease, hurt, or destroy him. These desires or passions have all their different symptoms by which they manifest themselves to those they disturb. And from that variety of disturbances they make within us, their various denominations have been given them, as has been shown already in pride and shame. The passion that is raised in us when we apprehend that mischief is approaching us is called fear. The disturbance it makes within us is always more or less violent in proportion, not of the danger, but our apprehension of the mischief dreaded with a real or imaginary. Our fear, then, being always proportioned to the apprehension we have of the danger, it follows that while the apprehension lasts, a man can no more shake off his fear than he can a leg or an arm. In a fright, it is true, the apprehension of danger is so sudden and attacks us so lively, as sometimes to take away reason and senses, that when it is over we often do not remember we had any apprehension at all. But from the event... It is plain we had it, for how could we have been frightened if we had not apprehended that some evil or other was coming upon us? Most people are of opinion that this apprehension is to be conquered by reason, but I confess I am not. Those that have been frightened will tell you that as soon as they could recollect themselves, that is, make use of their reason, their apprehension was conquered. But this is no conquest at all, for in a fright the danger was either altogether imaginary or or else it is past by that time they can make use of their reason, and therefore if they find there is no danger, it is no wonder that they should not apprehend any. But when the danger is permanent, let them then make use of their reason, and they will find that it may serve them to examine the greatness and reality of the danger, and that, if they find it less than they imagined, the apprehension will be lessened accordingly. But if the danger proves real, and the same in every circumstance as they took it to be at first, then their reason, instead of diminishing, will rather increase their apprehension. While this fear lasts, no creature can fight offensively, and yet we see brutes daily fight obstinately and worry one another to death, so that some other passion must be able to overcome this fear, and the most contrary to it is anger, which, to trace to the bottom, I must beg leave to make another digression. No creature can subsist without food, nor any species of them, I speak of the more perfect animals, continue long unless young ones are continually born as fast as the old ones die. Therefore the first and fiercest appetite that nature has given them is hunger, the next is lust, the one prompting them to procreate, as the other bids them eat. Now if we observe that anger is the passion which is raised in us when we are crossed or disturbed in our desires, and that as it sums up all the strength in creatures, so it was given them, that by it they might exert themselves more vigorously in endeavoring to remove, overcome, or destroy whatever obstructs them in the pursuit of self-preservation. We shall find that brutes, unless themselves are what they love, or the liberty of either are threatened or attacked, have nothing worth notice that can move them to anger, but hunger or lust." It is they that make them more fierce, for we must observe that the appetites of creatures are as actually crossed, while they want and cannot meet with what they desire, though perhaps with less violence, as when hindered from enjoying what they have in view. What I have said will appear more plainly if we but mind what nobody can be ignorant of, which is this. All creatures upon earth live either upon the fruits and product of it, or else the flesh of other animals, their fellow creatures, The latter, which we call beasts of prey, nature has armed accordingly, and given them weapons and strength to overcome and tear asunder those whom she has designed for their food, and likewise a much keener appetite than to other animals that live upon herbs, etc. For, as to the first, if a cow loved mutton as well as she does grass, being made as she is, and having no claws or talons, and but one row of teeth before, that are all of an equal length, she would be starved even among a flock of sheep. Secondly, as to their voraciousness, if experience did not teach us, our reason might. In the first place, it is highly probable that the hunger which can make a creature fatigue, harass, and expose himself to danger for every bit he eats, is more piercing than that which only bids him eat what stands before him, and which he may have for stooping down. In the second, it is to be considered that as beasts of prey have an instinct by which they learn to crave, trace, and discover those creatures that are good food for them, so the others have likewise an instinct that teaches them to shun, conceal themselves, and run away from those that hunt after them. From hence it must follow that beasts of prey, though they could almost eat forever, go yet more often with empty bellies than other creatures, whose victuals neither fly from nor oppose them. This must perpetuate as well as increase their hunger which hereby becomes a constant fuel to their anger. If you ask me what stirs up this anger in bulls and cocks that will fight to the death, and yet are neither animals of prey, nor very voracious, I answer, lust. Those creatures, whose rage proceeds from hunger, both male and female, attack everything they can master, and fight obstinately against all. But the animals, whose fury is provoked by a venereal ferment, being generally males, ...exert themselves chiefly against other males of the same species. They may do mischief by chance to other creatures, but the main objects of their hatred are their rivals, ...and it is against them only that their prowess and fortitude are shown. We see likewise in all those creatures, of which the male is able to satisfy a great number of females, ...a more considerable superiority in the male, expressed by nature in his make and features, ...as well as fierceness, than is observed in other creatures where the male is contented with one or two females. Dogs, though become domestic animals, are ravenous to a proverb, and those of them that will fight being carnivorous would soon become beasts of prey, if not fed by us. What we may observe in them is an ample proof of what I have hitherto advanced. Those of a true fighting breed, being voracious creatures, both male and female, will fasten upon anything, and suffer themselves to be killed before they give over." As the female is rather more salacious than the male, so there is no difference in their make at all, what distinguishes the sexes excepted, and the female is rather the fiercest of the two. A bull is a terrible creature when he is kept up, but where he has twenty or more cows to range among, in a little time he will become as tame as any of them, and a dozen hens will spoil the best game cock in England. Hearts and deers are counted chaste and timorous creatures, and so indeed they are almost all the year long, except in rutting time, and then on a sudden they become bold to admiration, and often make at the keepers themselves. That the influence of those two principal appetites, hunger and lust, upon the temper of animals, is not so whimsical as some may imagine, may be partly demonstrated from what is observable in ourselves. For, though our hunger is infinitely less violent than that of wolves and other ravenous creatures, Yet we see that people who are in health and have a tolerable stomach are more fretful and sooner put out of humor for trifles when they stay for their victuals beyond their usual hours than at any other time. And again, though lust in man is not so raging as it is in bulls and other salacious creatures, yet nothing provokes men and women both sooner and more violently to anger than what crosses their amours when they are heartily in love. the most fearful and tenderly educated of either sex have slighted the greatest dangers and set aside all other considerations to compass the destruction of a rival. Hitherto I have endeavored to demonstrate that no creature can fight offensively as long as his fear lasts, that fear cannot be conquered but by another passion, that the most contrary to it, and most effectual to overcome it, is anger, that the two principal appetites which, disappointed, can stir up this last-named passion are hunger and lust, and that, in all brute beasts, the proneness to anger and obstinacy in fighting generally depend upon the violence of either or both those appetites together, from whence it must follow, that what we call prowess, or natural courage in creatures, is nothing but the effect of anger, and that all fierce animals must either be very ravenous or very lustful, if not both. Let us now examine what by this rule we ought to judge of our own species, from the tenderness of man's skin and the great care that is required for years together to rear him, from the make of his jaws, the evenness of his teeth, the breadth of his nails, and the slightness of both. It is not probable that nature should have designed him for rapine. For this reason his hunger is not voracious as it is in beasts of prey, neither is he so salacious as other animals that are called so and being besides very industrious to supply his wants, he can have no reigning appetite to perpetuate his anger, and must consequently be a timorous animal. What I have said last must only be understood of man in his savage state, for, if we examine him as a member of a society, and a taught animal, we shall find him quite another creature. As soon as his pride has room to play, and envy, avarice, and ambition begin to catch hold of him, he is roused from his natural innocence and stupidity. As his knowledge increases, his desires are enlarged, and consequently his wants and appetites are multiplied. Hence it must follow, that he will often be crossed in the pursuit of them, and meet with abundance more disappointment to stir up his anger in this than his former condition. And man would in a little time become the most hurtful and obnoxious creature in the world, if let alone, whenever he could overpower his adversary if he had no mischief to fear but from the person that angered him. The first care, therefore, of all governments is, by severe punishments, to curb his anger when it does hurt, and so, by increasing his fears, prevent the mischief it might produce. When various laws to restrain him from using force are strictly executed, self-preservation must teach him to be peaceable. And, as it is everybody's business to be as little disturbed as possible, his fears will be continually augmented and enlarged as he advances in experience, understanding, and foresight. The consequence of this must be that as the provocations he will receive to anger will be infinite in the civilized state, so his fears to damp it will be the same. And thus, in a little time, he will be taught by his fears to destroy his anger, and by art to consult, in an opposite method, the same self-preservation for which nature before had furnished him with anger, as well as the rest of his passions. The only useful passion, then, that man is possessed of toward the peace and quiet of a society, is his fear, and the more you work upon it the more orderly and governable he will be, for how useful soever anger may be to man, as he is a single creature by himself, yet the society has no manner of occasion for it, but nature being always the same in the formation of animals, produces all creatures as like to those that beget and bear them, as the place she forms them in, and the various influences from without, will give her leave. And consequently all men, whether they are born in courts or forests, are susceptible of anger. When this passion overcomes, as among all degrees of people it sometimes does, the whole set of fears man has, he has true courage, and will fight as boldly as a lion or a tiger, and at no other time." and I shall endeavor to prove that whatever is called courage in man when he is not angry is spurious and artificial. It is possible by good government to keep a society always quiet in itself, but nobody can ensure peace from without forever. The society may have occasion to extend their limits further and enlarge their territories, or others may invade theirs, or something else will happen that man must be brought to fight. For how civilized soever men may be, They never forget that force goes beyond reason. The politician now must alter his measures and take off some of man's fears. He must strive to persuade him that all what was told him before of the barbarity of killing men ceases, as soon as these men are enemies to the public, and that their adversaries are neither so good nor so strong as themselves. These things well managed will seldom fail of drawing the hardiest, the most quarrelsome, and the most mischievous into combat but unless they are better qualified, I will not answer for their behavior there. If once you can make them undervalue their enemies, you may soon stir them up to anger, and while that lasts they will fight with greater obstinacy than any disciplined troops. But if anything happens that was unforeseen, and a sudden great noise, a tempest, or any strange or uncommon accident that seeks to threaten them intervenes, fear seizes them, disarms their anger, and makes them run away to a man." This natural courage, therefore, as soon as people begin to have more wit, must be soon exploded. In the first place, those that have felt the smart of the enemy's blows will not always believe what is said to undervalue him, and are often not easily provoked to anger. Secondly, anger consisting in an ebullition of the spirits is a passing of no long continuance, era furor brevis est, and the enemies, if they withstand the first shock of these angry people have commonly the better of it. Thirdly, as long as people are angry, all counsel and discipline are lost upon them, and they can never be brought to use their art or conduct in their battles. Anger, then, without which no creature has natural courage, being altogether useless in a war to be managed by stratagem, and brought into a regular art, the government must find out an equivalent for courage that will make men fight. Whoever would civilize men and establish them into a body politic must be thoroughly acquainted with all the passions and appetites, strengths and weaknesses of their frame, and understand how to turn their greatest frailties to the advantage of the public. In the inquiry into the origin of moral virtue, I have shown how easily men were induced to believe anything that is said in their praise. If, therefore, a lawgiver or politician whom they have great veneration for should tell them that the generality of men had within them a principle of valor distinct from anger, or any other passion, that made them to despise danger, and face death itself with intrepidity, and that they who had the most of it were the most valuable of their kind, it is very likely, considering what has been said, that most of them, though they felt nothing of this principle, would swallow it for truth, and that the proudest, feeling themselves moved at this piece of flattery, and not well versed in distinguishing the passions, might imagine that they felt it heaving in their breasts, by mistaking pride for courage. If but one in ten can be persuaded openly to declare that he is possessed of this principle, and maintain it against all gainsayers, there will soon be half a dozen that shall assert the same. Whoever has once owned it is engaged. The politician has nothing to do but take all imaginable care to flatter the pride of those that brag of, and are willing to stand by it a thousand different ways. The same pride that drew him in first will ever after oblige him to defend the assertion, till at last the fear of discovering the reality of his heart comes to be so great that it outdoes the fear of death itself. Do but increase a man's pride, and his fear of shame will ever be proportioned to it. For the greater value a man sets upon himself, the more pains he will take, and the greater hardships he will undergo to avoid shame. The great art to make man courageous... Is first to make him own this principle of valor within, and afterwards to inspire him with as much horror against shame as nature has given him against death. And that there are things to which man has, or may have, a stronger aversion than he has to death, is evident from suicide. He that makes death his choice must look upon it as less terrible than what he shuns by it. For whether the evil dreaded be present or to come, real or imaginary, Nobody would kill himself willfully but to avoid something. Lucretia held out bravely against all the attacks of the ravisher, even when he threatened her life, which shows that she valued her virtue beyond it. But when he threatened her reputation with eternal infamy, she fairly surrendered, and then slew herself, a certain sign that she valued her virtue less than her glory, and her life less than either. The fear of death did not make her yield, for she resolved to die before she did it, and her compliance must only be considered as a bribe to make Tarquin forbear sullying her reputation, so that life had neither the first nor second place in the esteem of Lucretia. The courage, then, which is only useful to the body politic, and that what is generally called true valor, is artificial, and consists in a superlative horror against shame by flattery infused into men of exalted pride. As soon as the notions of honor and shame are received among a society, it is not difficult to make men fight. First, take care they are persuaded of the justice of their cause, for no man fights heartily that thinks himself in the wrong. Then show them that their altars, their possessions, wives, children, and everything that is near and dear to them is concerned in the present quarrel, or at least may be influenced by it hereafter. Then put feathers in their caps and distinguish them from others, talk of public spiritedness, the love of their country, facing an enemy with intrepidity, despising death the bed of honour, and such like high-sounding words, and every proud man will take up arms and fight himself to death before he will turn tail, if it be by daylight. One man in an army is a check upon another, and a hundred of them, that single and without witness, would all be cowards, are, for fear of incurring one another's contempt, made valiant by being together. To continue and heighten this artificial courage, all that run away ought to be punished with ignominy. Those that fought well, whether they did beat or were beaten, must be flattered and solemnly commended. Those that lost their limbs rewarded, and those that were killed ought, above all, to be taken notice of, artfully lamented, and to have extraordinary encomiums bestowed upon them. For to pay honors to the dead, will ever be a sure method to make bubbles of the living. When I say that the courage made use of in the wars is artificial, I do not imagine that by the same art all men may be made equally valiant. As men have not an equal share of pride, and differ from one another in shape and inward structure, it is impossible they should all be equally fit for the same uses. Some men will never be able to learn music, and yet make good mathematicians. Others will play excellently well upon the violin, and yet be coxcombs as long as they live, let them converse with whom they please. But to show that there is no evasion, I shall prove that setting aside what I said of artificial courage already, what the greatest hero differs in from the rankest coward is altogether corporeal, and depends upon the inward make of the man. What I mean is called constitution, by which it is understood the orderly or disorderly mixture of the fluids in our body. That constitution which favors courage consists in the natural strength, elasticity, and due contexture of the finer spirits, and upon them wholly depends what we call steadfastness, resolution, and obstinacy. It is the only ingredient that is common to natural and artificial bravery, and is to either what size is to white walls, which hinders them from coming off and makes them lasting. That some people are very much, others very little frightened at things that are strange and sudden to them, is likewise altogether owing to the firmness or imbecility in the tone of the spirits. Pride is of no use in a fright, because while it lasts we cannot think, which, being counted a disgrace, is the reason people is always angry with anything that frightens them, as soon as the surprise is over. And when at the turn of a battle the conquerors give no quarter and are very cruel, it is a sign their enemies fought well, and had put them first into great fears." That resolution depends upon this tone of the spirits appears likewise from the effects of strong liquors, the fiery particles whereof crowding into the brain strengthen the spirits. Their operation imitates that of anger, which I said before was an ebullition of the spirits. It is for this reason that most people when they are in drink are sooner touched and more prone to anger than at other times, and some raving mad without any provocation at all. It is likewise observed that brandy makes men more quarrelsome at the same pitch of drunkenness than wine, because the spirits of distilled waters have abundance of fiery particles mixed with them, which the other has not. The contexture of spirits is so weak in some, that though they have pride enough, no art can ever make them fight, or overcome their fears, but this is a defect in the principle of the fluids, as other deformities are faults of the solids." These pusillanimous people are never thoroughly provoked to anger, where there is any danger, and drinking makes them bolder, but seldom so resolute as to attack any, unless they be women or children, or such who they know dare not resist. This constitution is often influenced by health and sickness, and impaired by great losses of blood. Sometimes it is corrected by diet, and it is this which the Duc de la Rochefoucauld means when he says, Vanity, shame, and above all constitution make up very often the courage of men and virtue of women. There is nothing that more improves the useful martial courage I treat of and at the same time shows it to be artificial than practice. For when men are disciplined, come to be acquainted with all the tools of death and engines of destruction, when the shouts, the outcries, the fire and smoke, the groans of wounded and ghostly looks of dying men, with all the various scenes of mangled carcasses and bloody limbs tore off, begin to be familiar to them, their fear abates apace. Not that they are now less afraid to die than before, but being used so often to see the same dangers, they apprehend the reality of them less than they did. As they are deservedly valued for every siege they are at, and every battle they are in, it is impossible but the several actions they share in must continually become as many solid steps by which their pride mounts up, and thus their fear of shame, as I said before, will always be proportional to their pride, increasing as the apprehension of the danger decreases. It is no wonder that most of them learn to discover little or no fear, and some great generals are able to preserve a presence of mind, and counterfeit a calm serenity within the midst of all the noise, horror, and confusion that attend a battle." So silly a creature is man, as that, intoxicated with the fumes of vanity, he can feast on the thoughts of the praises that shall be paid his memory in future ages, with so much ecstasy as to neglect his present life, nay, court and covet death, if he but imagines that it will add to the glory he had acquired before. There is no pitch of self-denial that a man of pride and constitution cannot reach, nor any passion so violent, but he will sacrifice it to another, which is superior to it. And here I cannot but admire the simplicity of some good men, who, when they hear of the joy and alacrity with which holy men in persecutions have suffered for their faith, imagine that such constancy must exceed all human force, unless it was supported by some miraculous assistance from heaven. As most people are willing to acknowledge all the frailties of their species, so they are unacquainted with the strength of our nature, and know not that some men of firm constitution may work themselves up into enthusiasm by no other help than the violence of their passions. Yet it is certain that there have been men who, only assisted with pride and constitution to maintain the worst of causes, have undergone death and torments with as much cheerfulness as the best of men, animated with piety and devotion, ever did for the true religion. To prove this assertion, I could produce many instances, but one or two will be sufficient. Jordanus Bruno of Nola, who wrote that silly piece of blasphemy called Spacio della Bestia Triumphante, and the infamous Vanini, were both executed for openly professing and teaching of atheism. The latter might have been pardoned the moment before his execution, if he would have retracted his doctrine, but rather than recant, he chose to be burnt to ashes. As he went to the stake, he was so far from showing any concern that he held his hand out to a physician whom he happened to know, desiring him to judge of the calmness of his mind by the regularity of his pulse, and from thence taking an opportunity of making an impious comparison uttered a sentence too execrable to be mentioned. To these we may join one Mahomet Effendi, who, as Sir Paul Rickout tells us, was put to death at Constantinople having advanced some notions against the existence of a god, he likewise might have saved his life by confessing his error and renouncing it for the future, but chose rather to persist in his blasphemies, saying, though he had no reward to expect, the love of truth constrained him to suffer martyrdom in its defense. I have made this digression chiefly to show the strength of human nature, and what mere man may perform by pride and constitution alone. Man may certainly be as violently roused by his vanity as a lion is by his anger. And not only this, avarice, revenge, ambition, and almost every passion, pity not excepted when they are extraordinary, may, by overcoming fear, serve him instead of valor, and be mistaken for it even by himself, as daily experience must teach everybody that will examine and look into the motives from which some men act. But that we may more clearly perceive what this pretended principle is really built upon, let us look into the management of military affairs, and we shall find that pride is nowhere so openly encouraged as there. As for clothes, the very lowest of the commission officers have them richer, or at least more gay and splendid, than are generally wore by other people of four or five times their income. Most of them, and especially those that have families, and can hardly subsist, would be very glad, all Europe over, to be less expensive that way, but it is a force put upon them to uphold their pride, which they do not think on. But the ways and means to rouse man's pride and catch him by it are nowhere more grossly conspicuous than in the treatment which the common soldiers receive whose vanity is to be worked upon, because there must be so many, at the cheapest rate imaginable. Things we are accustomed to we do not mind, or else what mortal that had never seen a soldier could look without laughing upon a man accoutred with so much paltry gaudiness and affected finery. The coarsest manufacture that can be made of wool, dyed of a brick dust color, goes down with him, because it is in imitation of scarlet or crimson cloth, and to make him think himself as like his officer as it is possible, with little or no cost, instead of silver or gold lace, his hat is trimmed with white or yellow worsted, which in others would deserve bedlam, yet these fine allurements and the noise made upon a calfskin have drawn in and been the destruction of more men in reality than all the killing eyes and bewitching voices of women ever slew in jest. Today the swineherd puts on his red coat and believes everybody in earnest that calls him gentleman, and two days after Sergeant Kite gives him a swinging rap with his cane for holding his musket an inch higher than he should do. As to the real dignity of the employment, in the last two wars, officers, when recruits were wanted, were allowed to list fellows that were convicted of burglary and other capital crimes, which shows that to be made a soldier is deemed to be a preferment next to hanging. A trooper is yet worse than a foot soldier, for when he is most at ease, he has the mortification of being groomed to a horse that spends more money than himself. When a man reflects on all this, the uses they generally receive from their officers their pay, and the care that is taken of them, when they are not wanted, must he not wonder how wretches can be so silly as to be proud of being called gentlemen soldiers? Yet if there were not, no art, discipline, or money would be capable of making them so brave as thousands of them are. If we will mind what affects man's bravery, without any other qualifications to sweeten him, would have out of an army, we shall find that it would be very pernicious to the civil society, for if man could conquer all his fears... You would hear of nothing but rapes, murders, and violences of all sorts, and valiant men would be like giants in romances. Politics, therefore, discovered in men a mixed-metal principle, which was a compound of justice, honesty, and all the moral virtues joined to courage, and all that were possessed of it turned knights-errant, of course. They did abundance of good throughout the world, by taming monsters, delivering the distressed, and killing the oppressors, But the wings of all the dragons being clipped, the giants destroyed, and the damsels everywhere set at liberty except some few in Spain and Italy, who remain still captivated by their monsters, the order of chivalry, to whom the standard of ancient honor belonged, has been laid aside some time. It was like their armors very massy and heavy, the many virtues about it made it very troublesome, And as ages grew wiser and wiser, the principle of honor in the beginning of the last century was melted over again and brought to a new standard. They put in the same weight of courage half the quantity of honesty and a very little justice, but not a scrap of any other virtue, which has made it very easy and portable to what it was. However, such as it is, there would be no living without it in a large nation. It is the tie of society and though we are beholden to our frailties for the chief ingredient of it, there is no virtue, at least that I am acquainted with, that has been half so instrumental to the civilizing of mankind, who in great societies would soon degenerate into cruel villains and treacherous slaves, were honor to be removed from among them. As to the dueling part which belongs to it, I pity the unfortunate whose lot it is, but to say that those who are guilty of it go by false rules, or mistake the notions of honor, is ridiculous. For either there is no honor at all, or it teaches men to resent injuries and accept of challenges. You may as well deny that it is the fashion what you see everybody wear, as to say that demanding and giving satisfaction is against the laws of true honor. Those that rail at dueling do not consider the benefit the society receives from that fashion. If every ill-bred fellow might use what language he pleased without being called to account for it, all conversation would be spoiled. Some grave people tell us that the Greeks and Romans were such valiant men and yet knew nothing of dueling but in their country's quarrel. This is very true, but, for that reason, the kings and princes in Homer gave one another worse language than our porters and hackney coachmen would be able to bear without resentment. Would you hinder dueling? Pardon nobody that offends that way, and make the laws as severe as you can, but do not take away the thing itself. The custom of it. This will not only prevent the frequency of it, but likewise, by rendering the most resolute and most powerful, cautious, and circumspect in their behaviour, polish and brighten society in general. Nothing civilizes a man equally as his fear, and if not all, as my Lord Rochester said, at least most men would be cowards if they durst. The dread of being called to an account keeps abundance in awe, and there are thousands of mannerly and well accomplished gentlemen in Europe who would have been insolent and insupportable coxcombs without it. Besides, if it was out of fashion to ask satisfaction for injuries which the law cannot take hold of, there would be twenty times the mischief done there is now, or else you must have twenty times the constables and other officers to keep the peace. I confess that though it happens but seldom, it is a calamity to the people, and generally the families it falls upon. But there can be no perfect happiness in this world, and all felicity has an allay. The act itself is uncharitable, but when above thirty in a nation destroy themselves in one year, and not half that number are killed by others, I do not think the people can be said to love their neighbors worse than themselves. It is strange that a nation should grudge to see, perhaps, half a dozen men sacrificed in a twelve-month to obtain so valuable a blessing as the politeness of manners, the pleasure of conversation, and the happiness of company in general, that is often so willing to expose, and sometimes loses as many thousands in a few hours, without knowing whether it will do any good or not. I would have nobody that reflects on the mean original of honor, complain of being gulled and made a property by cunning politicians, but desire everybody to be satisfied that the governors of all societies, and those in high stations, are greater bubbles to pride than any of the rest. If some great men had not a superlative pride... And everybody understood the enjoyment of life, who would be a Lord Chancellor of England, a Prime Minister of State in France, or what gives more fatigue and not a sixth part of the profit of either, a Grand Pensionary of Holland? The reciprocal services which all men pay to one another are the foundation of the society. The great ones are not flattered with their high birth for nothing. It is to rouse their pride and excite them to glorious actions that we extol their race whether it deserves it or not. And some men have been complimented with the greatness of their family and the merit of their ancestors, when in the whole generation you could not find two but what were uxorious fools, silly bigots, noted poltroons, or debauched whore-masters. The established pride that is inseparable from those that are possessed of titles already makes them often strive as much not to seem unworthy of them as the working ambition of others that are yet without, renders them industrious and indefatigable to deserve them. When a gentleman is made a baron or an earl, it is a great check upon him in many respects, as a gown and cassock are to a young student that has been newly taken into orders. The only thing of weight that can be said against modern honor is that it is directly opposite to religion. The one bids you bear injuries with patience, the other tells you if you do not resent them, you are not fit to live. Religion commands you to leave all revenge to God. Honor bids you to trust your revenge to nobody but yourself, even where law would do it for you. Religion plainly forbids murder. Honor openly justifies it. Religion bids you not shed blood upon any account whatever. Honor bids you fight for the least trifle. Religion is built on humility and honor upon pride. How to reconcile them must be left to wiser heads than mine. The reason why there are so few men of real virtue, and so many of real honor is, because all the recompense a man has of a virtuous action is the pleasure of doing it, which most people reckon but poor pay. But the self-denial a man of honor submits to in one appetite is immediately rewarded by the satisfaction he receives from another, and what he abates of his avarice or any other passion is doubly repaid to his pride." Besides, honor gives large grains of allowance, and virtue none. A man of honor must not cheat or tell a lie. He must punctually repay what he borrows at play, though the creditor has nothing to show for it. But he may drink and swear and owe money to all the tradesmen in town without taking notice of their dunning. A man of honor must be true to his prince and country while he is in their service, but if he thinks himself not well used, he may quit it, and do them all the mischief he can, a man of honour must never change his religion for interest, but he may be as debauched as he pleases, and never practise any; he must make no attempts upon his friend's wife, daughter, sister, or anybody that is trusted to his care, but he may lie with all the world besides. End of section nineteen.